The girl's mad. I slammed the clinic door behind me. Across the park, a white flag signalled an urgent message. The section of the Cessna's tailplane hung from the upper boughs of the dead elm, whipped to and fro by the wind. Fortunately, the police had still failed to find me, and none of the tennis players was showing any interest in the downed aircraft. I drummed my fists on the roofs of the parked cars, annoyed with Miriam St. Cloud. This likeable but confused woman doctor showed all the signs of turning into a witch. I decided to lose myself among the afternoon housewives and catch the first bus back to the airport. At the same time, I found that I was laughing out loud at myself. The abortive flight had been a double fiasco. Not only had I crashed and nearly killed myself, but the few witnesses who might have tried to save me had developed a vested interest in believing that I had died. The notion of my death in some deranged way fulfilled a profound need, perhaps linked with their sterile lives in this suffocating town. Anyone who came within its clutches was unconsciously assumed to have died. Thinking of Dr. Miriam, I'd have liked to show her just how dead I was, and seed a child between those shy hips. I strode past the war memorial and open-air swimming pool. The town centre consisted of little more than a supermarket and shopping mall, a multi-storey car park and filling station. Shepperton, known to me only for its film studios, seemed to be the everywhere of suburbia, the paradigm of nowhere. Young mothers steered small children in and out of the laundrette and supermarket, refueled their cars at the filling station. They gazed at their reflections in the appliance store windows, exposing their handsome bodies to these washing machines and television sets as if setting up clandestine liaisons with them. As I stared at this array of thighs and breasts, I was aware of my nervous sex set off by the crash, by Miriam St. Cloud and the blind child. All my senses seemed to be magnified. Scents collided in the air. The shop fronts flashed gaudy signs at me. I was moving among these young women, with my loins at more than half cock, ready to mount them among the pyramids of detergent packs and free cosmetic offers. Over my head, the sky brightened, bathing the placid roofs in an auroral light, transforming this suburban high street into an avenue of temples. I felt queasy and leaned against the chestnut tree outside the post office. I waited for this retinal illusion to pass, unsure whether to halt the passing traffic and warn these ruminating women that they and their offspring were about to be annihilated. Already, I was attracting attention. A group of teenagers stopped as I blinked and clenched my fists. They laughed at my grotesque costume, the priest's shiny black suit and the white sneakers. Blake, wait for me! As I swayed helplessly, surrounded by these tittering youths, I heard Father Wingate shouting at me. He crossed the street, holding back the cars with a strong hand, his forehead glaring like a helmet in the over-bright air. He ordered the teenagers away, and then stared at me with the same expression of concern and anger.
as if I were some deviant usurper he was bound by a strange tie to assist. Blake, what are you looking at? Blake! Trying to escape the light and this odd clergyman, I jumped an ornamental rail and ran off down the side street of sedate bungalows behind the post office. Father Wingate's voice faded behind me, lost among the car horns and overhead aircraft. Here, everything was calmer. The pavements were deserted, the well-tended gardens like miniature memorial parks consecrated to the household gods of the television set and dishwasher.